Right. Well, we seem to be having a problem getting all our guests this evening. And uh, so we're going to jump ahead in the program. And uh, let me tell you that the harvest has just come to an end. The vineyards are decked in their autumn finery. And just as the first vestiges of winter can be felt in the crisp air, the Elgin Wine Valley opens its doors to visitors for the annual Elgin Cool Wine and Country Festival. And joining me now is Michelle von Staden of Elgin Wine. Michelle, good evening. Thank you very much for coming on a whole lot earlier than you had anticipated. Thank you, Kyron. Very nice to speak to you this evening and good evening to your listeners as well. So the annual big festival coming up, do tell us, the 2nd and 3rd of May, what's on the cards for this year? That's right. It's the fourth um, annual festival that we are having and it's called the Elgin Cool Wine and Country Festival and this is really a celebration of, as you just mentioned, the end of harvest and we have 18 farms participating and each of them are doing something on their farms. So there's really a collaboration of a lot of different activities and there's definitely something for everyone. So this is obviously a family event. It's one of those things you can bring the whole family and have a fabulous time. That's right, yes. There's definitely something for the whole family to do from old um, and definitely something for the wine lover to someone who's possibly not so serious about wine and for the kids as well. Lots of kids' entertainment and lawn games. So how many wine farms are going to be exhibiting, if you like, in inverted commas, at the festival? We have 18 farms participating in this festival. So there's quite a range of wines as well. What is different about the wines from Elgin? We pride ourselves on the fact that we are a very cool climate wine area and we specialize in Sauvignon Blanc and Chardonnay and Pinot Noir and Shiraz. And I think the wines really stand out and I think the climate is testimony to the fact that we make great quality wines in this area. So, as I mentioned, the 2nd and 3rd of May, but now, you know, people coming up for the day, no, no point in just coming up for the day. Is there anywhere to stay if they do come up? Yes, there is. We have a wonderful um, Elgin accommodation facilities um, that is run by our Elgin Tourism Office, and they are most welcome to visit the website or ours. There's a link on our site as well, which takes them to the, um, to the Elgin Tourism website. So, Elgin as a destination... Michelle, tell us a little bit about that because maybe some people don't know where you are and what is on offer around you. Elgin is 75, more or less 75 kilometers southeast of Cape Town. You take the N2 as you would be driving along to Hamanus, and um, just once you pass Summers West and over the Solaris Pass, you um, enter the beautiful Elgin Valley, and it's um, literally from on the N2 wall to wall, pine farms all the way. So very, very special and you cannot miss it because everybody knows the Peregrine Farm Store, which is oh, yes. a landmark that most people can't, cannot drive past. No, I have that problem. You sort of feel the need. You always need to stop. Absolutely. You and never know. There might just be something new that you have to try and have to taste. Well, the last time I stopped there was quite a while ago, actually. I've stopped there since then. But a while ago when I stopped there, they were doing a whole wine tasting from a from a vineyard that I'd never heard of. And we now are addicted to those wines. I mean, we have to always go and look for those. So that's, it's that's well the worth thing. stopping there. Absolutely. There's always something new. And there's a tourism office there as well. Is it still there? That's right, yes. The tourism office is also there at Peregrine Farm Store. So it's a one-stop shop. I mean, you can find out everything you need to know. Plus, you never know what's going to be happening inside there either. And and honestly, you know, take the credit card in with you because there's lots of real nice goodies in there too. They've just also just um, quite recently, the past year, they've um, revamped their whole restaurant. It's called the Red Tractor. Mm. And they really make fantastic breakfasts and and lovely lunches as well. So it's worthwhile to stop in this nice stayover for a cup of coffee or a cappuccino. Now, you can also buy tickets for the festival there, actually, as well, at the Peregrine Farm Store. Yes, you can. We are selling the tickets um, on web tickets, so you can buy it online. It's 100 rand per person, um, or otherwise, alternatively, you can buy it on the day at the Elgin Cool Wine and Country Festival office, which is going to be at the Peregrine Farm Store over that weekend. Okay, so the tickets are 120, or they're 100 rand if you're an early bird. You can get That's right. early bird tickets 100 rand and 120 if not. That's right. Can they buy them anywhere else other than at the farm store or via web tickets if they just pitch up to Elgin to one of the farms? How is it actually going to work? Are they going to be moving from estate to estate or is it all in one place? Or? So I would encourage people to go and have a look at the program on the website and tailor make their day because, you know, inevitably the day is just too short. Mm. You always want to do something and you never get around to it. So have a look at what each of the farms are offering and decide on two or three um, venues that you want to visit. 
and, and, and spend some time. Lots of the farms are, have what, live entertainment or are doing either a vertical testing or a blending exercise or something like that. So it's something more than just eating and drinking that can be done. Yes. And um, I think that the best is to go to the website, have a look at the program, decide on what you do, and then plan your day accordingly. And that's elginwine.co.za. That's Everything right. is on there as well. Yes. And one very important thing I saw in your press release, Michelle, was that you promote designated drivers and that's the Responsible use of alcohol and yes. no alcohol served to children under the age of 18. We always have to say that. I mean, I know it's something that people think, oh, you know, I know that. But we always have to tell people this, and it's Absolutely. something that you promote. So yes. it's very important. It is. I agree. It's really, really important. We want to be seen as a responsible um, wine route as well, and that's something that we encourage. So it sounds like it's going to be an amazing day. A weekend. Well, weekend a weekend, <laughs> yes. And because I'm encouraging people to go and stay over. You know, it might not be that far from Cape Town, but honestly, it's a fabulous place to go and stay over. And, and as you say, there's lots to see in the area as well. It's not just, you know, coming up for the festival. They can do that, but there's lots of other things in Elgin as well to see and do. We're just coming to the end of our apple picking season. Mm. Um, so there's obviously, you know, lots to see in beautiful, you know, the surroundings are really, really pretty. Um, and people who are mountain bike enthusiasts, um, there's lots of single track riding to be done in the valley as well. So that's also something that's worthwhile coming out for. And then we recently have a, a new facility which has got canopy tours. Oh, so right. You do, yeah, you can do some canopy hopping as well. So all the information on what they can do once they are in Elgin is on the Elgin Tourism website. Fantastic. And also one of the other perks about coming to something like this is that their selection of wines will be available for purchase at cellar door prices and that's always the best way if you're wanting to buy some wine buy it at cellar door prices because it'll be a lot cheaper than when you get back to town that's right. So, I agree. I think you best stock up if it's cold winter. It's absolutely. Some nice red wines or something, you know, just make sure the boot's empty before you yes, get there. <laughs> get up there with a nice empty. It's like going overseas on holiday. Make sure one of your suitcases is empty, you know. <laughs> Same thing. Make sure the boot's empty. Yes, absolutely, Karen. I can't agree with you more. Well, it sounds like an amazing time. And uh, this, you said, is the fourth one, the fourth year now. That's right. How many people are you expecting? Well, we've grown it every year and we're expecting um, just over a thousand people. Wow. Um, it's not a huge thing, and I think the one thing about Elgin that we've always prided ourselves on is that it's not such a commercial wine mm. route, and we try to keep it like that. So when people come out to visit, they can actually often meet the winemaker who's possibly also manning the tasting room, or you know he's he's in the area, so they mm. meet the people behind the wine. I think that's quite quite special and quite unique about the Elgin wine route. It's one of those things. Don't tell anybody. Just just between you and me, you know that this is all happening up there. You know, so. <laughs> Don't tell anybody. Exactly. Michelle, well, thank you. It sounds absolutely amazing. And thank you so much for joining us. And it sounds like, it's, as you said, an amazing weekend. And hopefully we'll have some new converts to the Elgin Valley because maybe people have never been up there before. And it'll be rather nice to go and explore something new if you haven't. So, Or if you have been there before, I'm sure you're rushing off because you'll know how fabulous it is. So um, thank you so much for your time this evening. Thank you, Karen. Have a lovely evening. Thanks. Bye. You too. Good night to you. I was chatting there with Michelle von Staden, and she's from Elgin Wine, and we were talking about the upcoming Elgin Cool Wine and Country Festival. It's taking place on the 2nd and 3rd of May. Tickets are available from webtickets.co.za and also at the Peregrine Farm Store, which is on the way to Elgin. The tickets are 120 rand per person, but if you're an early bird, you can get them for 100 rand, and you can buy those online at Web Tickets. So if I was you, I'd get on there right now. And uh, if you'd like more information on what to do, where to stay, and what else there is to it's going on in the Elgin Valley, take a look at the website. It's www.elginvalley.co.za. Time to travel on SAFM. Well, we seem to not be having a very good uh, go this evening. I think hopefully we've got Martin Rodriguez on the line. He's no, no, not yet. We None of our... Um, Oh, Hunley's with us. Oh, fantastic. We seem to be having a problem with phones this evening. Don't know what it is. It's a Wednesday. These things normally only happen on a Monday. Well, Hunley Prinsloo <laughs> is a South African freediver and founder of the I Am Water Foundation. And we're going to be chatting about sharks. Now, that's something we probably only take notice of every now and then. But they are endangered. And why? Because of human activities. And here in South Africa, we are still fortunate to have the Great White, which brings hundreds of tourists to our shores every year. And besides the impact on tourism, if these sharks were to disappear. What impact would it have on our oceans? Hanley, good evening. I'm, I'm rather alarmed having read some of the information that you've put out in a, a piece that you wrote. I'm sort of wondering what would happen to us if the sharks disappeared. Hi, 
Hi there. Nice to chat with you. Um, yes, it's interesting. It seems as if people are a lot more afraid of encountering a shark in the ocean mm. when, in fact, the fear should lie in not encountering a shark in the ocean. You know, with all ecosystems, we need apex predators in an ecosystem to keep it healthy. You know, as soon as you take the predator out of the ecosystem, there's this cascading effect where it affects everything and it can't function anymore. You know, what the shark eats depends on what that other creature then will eat, you know, and then you just, it all collapses. We've seen examples of that um, all over the world with the wolves in Yellowstone Park here in South Africa with the disappearance of, you know, cats in certain areas. And in the ocean, we think that it being such a vast expanse that there's no way we could ever make a dent in these ecosystems and actually affect it negatively when we really can. It's much more fragile than its, than its size belies. You know, I, I saw some of the pictures that came with some information that you wrote and of you diving, I think, in the Cocos Islands with all sorts of things, including sharks. That's right. That's right. I have had the great privilege to travel around the world and dive with some of the largest marine creatures on the planet. And it really is a privilege because their numbers are declining. And Cocos Island is a phenomenal place. You know, we flew into Costa Rica and got on a boat and traveled 36 hours by boat to get to this emerald green island in the middle of nowhere and still we see the effects of of human habitation you know there's trash in the water there's sharks with hooks in their mouths you still see how we how we affect the ecosystem now you went over there as part of the high profile documentary film project that was going on at the time what were they doing that's correct. So the, luckily for us, there are a lot of people who understand and are galvanized around these issues. And we were invited to travel along with Dr. Sylvia Earle, who's probably our foremost oceanographer alive today in the world, and her team from Mission Blue, who work on phenomenal projects around the world called Hope Spots, where they identify areas that would have a huge impact if protected. And this area around Cocos Island is one of these hope spots. And we were joined on the trip by a really fabulous film crew from Fusion Network in Miami, as well as actor Adrian Grenier and some other ocean conservationists from around the world. And the idea is that we will all, in our own way, tell the stories that we encountered in Cocos Island. And um, it was fascinating because we all come from such, such different backgrounds, but brought together by this very, very strong issue close to all our hearts. You know, you look at the pictures of sharks versus things like dolphins or porpoises or things like that, and the dolphins and the porpoises always look so cute. And then you see the shark, mm-hmm. it's normally got its mouth open and those teeth, and you think, oh, no. And I think that that is why people don't maybe have the same affection, if you like, for the shark. Absolutely. I mean, the shark is the creature that we just love to hate. You know, it doesn't it kills a handful of people every other year in the world, whereas, you know, animals like hippos or even dogs or, you know, there are so many other animals that are more ferocious, but we love to fear this creature that swims quietly just below the surface. And it's this whole what we cannot see, I think, that also not even just the shape of the shark or the fact that it has rows of teeth, it's also that it's not something we can see easily unless we're in the water with a mask on. But it's an interesting phenomena with, with our fear of sharks. It's not something that's been prevalent um, as long as one would believe. You know, I speak to a lot of fishermen and spear fishermen and divers around the world who claim that they only learned to fear white sharks or sharks after jaws and after thorns well, like I was jaws. about to say, I think it's fascinating. started it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah thought, it's yeah. fascinating how the psychology of it works. And are we, how do you change people's mindsets, though, Hanley? That's the problem. It is. It definitely is a challenge. I mean, these things that are such deep-rooted fears and beliefs, what I found really works is having people experience something different. So with our foundation, with I'm Water, we work with taking people into the ocean environment and on all different levels, giving them an experience that will change their belief system and will change their fear. So... From working with youth and children who've never had the opportunity to be in the ocean and snorkel or swim, all the way to high-profile decision-makers who get to snorkel or swim with sharks or with manta rays or with whales and give them this real transformational experience. 
And another part of it is, of course, like the kind of imagery you saw, myself swimming next to a shark mm. three times my size, does make people pause and go, hey, but why isn't it eating her? And then the conversation is started that we're actually not on the menu, this is not a monster, this is a very important creature, etc. So why does it actually attack humans then? Why sharks actually attack is a very complex question and definitely unique to different areas. But if we take Cape Town, for an example, mm. which I think you know is relevant, um, we have incredible, incredible apex predators here on our shores. And right now I'm sitting here right in Fault Bay where I live and you know, looking out over the water, imagining them going along their sharky ways. And every summer, as we know, they're coming to shore. This is part of their feeding pattern. They don't only feed off seals. They only also feed off other reef fish, other sharks, etc., closer to shore. So in summertime, when the seals are feeding further off, they come inshore and they cruise around and they look for food. And, you know, when we're bobbing around at the surface on our, on our surfboards or swimming long-distance swims, you know, these sharks are so curious and so confident. And having swum with so many different kinds of sharks, you always know that the sharks will come and check you out and they'll swim up and they'll have a look and then they'll have another look. And if they're very curious, they might do what you or I would do when we would reach out and touch an object. But their way of doing that is with their mouth. And they could so, keep it closed, honey. I mean, they didn't have to, uh, you know. <laughs> you mean they could just snuggle? They could just snuggle or just bump know, you or something. I know, But the reality is they are created perfectly for what they do. We just don't want to encounter them when they are doing that. No. And that, in that way, I'm really proud of Cape Town for having this, shark spotter program that we have, you know, where it's a completely mm. non-invasive way of limiting encounters with sharks. But the problem with that is, I mean, I also live in Cape Town and I get quite frustrated when the shark spotters are, are saying there's sharks in the bay, they put up the flags and then you'll get some bright sparkle say, oh, well, I'll just take a chance anyway and go in. And on more than one occasion, they've ended up getting bitten. And you sort of think, Absolutely. well, you know, the flags are up there telling you there's a shark there, don't go in the water. And then it becomes this yeah. whole big thing about shark attack in false bay. But you sort of think, well, maybe he shouldn't have gone in there at that time. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. And I, and I think for that reason, education is a huge thing. You know, I, I, don't, I wouldn't go swimming around Seal Island in False Bay, you know, with the sharks. I just wouldn't. It's where they feed. I definitely could be a target. It's, it wouldn't be a good thing for the sharks or for myself to do that. So, you know, it's all about education in different areas. We know if the visibility is bad, if the river's coming down, you don't surf there or swim there. So education is a very big thing in understanding sharks and their behavior because it's so much more complex than we believe. How bad is the shark hunting effectively around the South African coast? Around the South African coast, we have quite good control of our fisheries with quotas, etc. So... You know, and we've done a good job of protecting our great white sharks. The problem is that, you know, a country only has a jurisdiction so far out to sea. And here in South Africa, I'm not quite sure of exactly how many, you know, kilometers away from the shore. But most of our oceans are high seas, you know, are unprotected by any jurisdiction of a country. So we could say that, yes, inshore South Africa, we're protecting our sharks. But as soon as our sharks venture just offshore they are completely at risk of being caught by long-lining vessels that, you know, have these incredibly long lines with hooks on them that hook up sharks, turtles, rays, anything that comes by. And one of their targets, of course, is the sharks for their fins. Mm. So over, over 100 million sharks a year are still being killed, which is a number one cannot really wrap one's head around. And I wish it was an exaggeration, but it's not. It's actually quite horrifying because, I mean, I thought those long-line fishermen were supposedly banned. Or is that just in sh close inshore? Sure, are they still allowed to do this out there? Well, out there, there's nobody who can tell them mm. not to. You know, it's this vast expanse of unprotected water. So there are no rules or regulations for the high seas, which is something that a lot of us are petitioning and advocating for, that there should be protection of the high seas because you can protect, you know, coastal areas as much as you possibly can. But... Most animals are pelagic and they travel further offshore and then you can't protect them anymore. What got you into doing something like this? Because it's not the sort of thing people think, oh, I'll just go and dive around and swim with sharks. <laughs> no, where where did this not. come from with you? Well, I grew up on a horse farm outside Pretoria. So I've, from a very early age, had a huge love for nature and for animals and particularly, I think, an understanding and appreciation for animals that are larger than us and yet not as 
vicious or powerful as one would believe. And then I got into competitive freediving and really enjoyed that sensation of being underwater on one breath, freediving being the sport of diving mm. as deep as far as long as possible on one breath of air. And diving deeper and deeper, competing around the world, I became very good at spending time underwater and broke a bunch of records. And then I one day had this experience with dolphins where everything just made sense. All those hours spent swimming up and down in a pool, swimming up and down a rope, I was like, this is it. This is why I want to be good underwater, to swim with these animals, not to break records or try to be better than anybody else. And so I retired from competitive freediving and now run the foundation to protect oceans and to help others experience the ocean because I truly believe that if we love something deeply, we will be galvanized to protect it. And I think that it's very easy to fall in love with the ocean if given the opportunity because it happened for myself. So tell me about the I Am Water Foundation. Right. So I Am Water for me is a name that resonates strongly. We are water. We come from this watery world of nine months in the womb and then we're born. And our bodies, when we're born, is exactly the same percentage of water as as the planet is. Isn't that fascinating? 71% Mm. of our bodies are water and so is the planet. And we have this in us and it unites us. And if you look at the map, you know, all this blue around the world, it unites us as opposed to divides us. It's a very blue planet. And the belief with I'm Water is that Ocean conservation happens through human experience. And my experience here in South Africa was just so many people in our country don't have access to water, to swimming, to being in the ocean. And we have coastal communities who can't swim and who don't understand the riches in the ocean right on their doorstep. And I initially thought that this is a South African or an African challenge and started I'm Water here in South Africa and started working with kids from the townships here in Cape Town and in KZN. And then traveling to Bermuda, for example, I did a TED Talk in Bermuda and was like, it's exactly the same here. How is that possible? Bermuda is a small island in the middle of the Atlantic, and yet the kids can't swim and have never seen their reef. And I realized that this is something that exists in many different places. So now we're building different projects around the world to really work with introducing youth and children and other of course, adults as well, but our focus is on youth and children to their ocean heritage and that ocean experience right on their doorstep so that they will want to protect it, but also because I believe that it should be a human right to explore the largest part of our ocean, of our planet, which is, which is ocean. So you're teaching people, children, specifically at this stage, to swim? We're teaching them to swim and to snorkel. Yes. You know, that in itself, and I was doing some interviews a couple of months ago with the World Health organization and they were talking about the alarming increase in the number of children drowning around the world i mean the number just grows every year and it's what you're saying i mean these people we like we all live well not we all but a lot of us live at the coast and yet we don't swim we don't teach our children to swim we aren't you know happy to be in the water it's that whole i think it's a bit of a fear really Mm, absolutely and sometimes it's cultural and sometimes it's economic you know there's a lot of different reasons that inhibit people from entering the water. But you see all around the world that people are flocking to live by the coast. Mm. And this is an interesting development, but also can be quite detrimental to coastlines. You know, every beautiful bay is turned into a marina, for example, you know, and there's dredging that happens because we want it to be sandy or trucking in sand, all these things that happen around the world. And it's desperate habitat destruction. But if local communities understand more about what's going on in their oceans, they could take more of a stand and be more informed in what decisions are made and how one develops the coastline. So, you know, it it plays in in a lot of different ways that we want children to grow up to be custodians of nature. And, I mean, my passion is ocean, but it's the same terrestrial, it's the same on land, you know, that we want to grow generations of nature-loving and understanding adults so that they will make right the right decisions now you're also working on an awareness campaign called the last wilderness yes do you want to just tell us a little bit about that the last wilderness is a project very close to my heart because it captures the thing i love most which is exploring and going to wild places and experiencing that that wilderness and from the experiences I've had in oceans around the world, is that this truly is our last wilderness. There are so few places on land 
that haven't been explored or exploited for that matter. Whereas in the ocean, there are these places that are still completely wild and these animals that we know so little about. So the last wilderness charts our travels around the world where we dive with these big animals all the way from blue whales to sperm whales to dolphins to large oceanic manta rays. And my partner, Peter Marshall, who I travel with, who is also my life partner and photographer, he captures images and video of me interacting with these animals. And I write the essays and we'll be publishing a book next year on these interactions and also some documentary films and trying to help people understand the fragility of something that's so large and so wild as the oceans are and how one can interact with these very large animals we know so little about. Well, it sounds like you have a wonderful time exploring all of this, honey, but with an amazing purpose behind all of it. Because, you know, you are making us aware and hopefully more of us will become aware of the need to protect our our seas and the creatures in the seas. I think I, I think it's something that it's long due that we should have done this by now. And uh, thank you very much for raising the awareness. Thank you. I think you're doing an amazing job. And hopefully we'll chat again once your book comes out, your documentaries are coming out. If those photographs I saw anything to go by, amazing, amazing. Are those going to be th- something that's going to be in the books? Yes, some of those will definitely be featured in the book. And if, if you're interested to, to follow our, our journeys and the work we do, um, the website is updated regularly. We have a blog and a newsletter on iamwaterfoundation.org. So please do, please stay in touch and, and yeah, follow the story. Absolutely. Well, Hanley, thank you so much for the time this evening. I really enjoyed chatting with you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Have a great evening. You too. Good night to you. Hanley Prinsler is a South African freediver and founder of the I Am Water Foundation. And for more information on the foundation and to follow their journey and to take a look at some of those amazing photographs of her swimming with these amazing creatures, you can have a look at the website. It's IamWaterFoundation.org. Time to travel on SAFM. Right, well, I think Martin Rodriguez is joining us now. And the Crockworld Conservation Centre in KZN recently celebrated its 30th anniversary. And I've spoken to Martin Rodriguez, Crockworld Conservation Centre manager and herpetology expert in the past. But this evening, I wanted to chat with him about the history of this remarkable centre. Martin, good evening. Welcome back to the show. Good evening, Corinne. Thanks once again for having me on your show. It's always great to chat with you, but not talking about any of the lectures you're going to be having or anything else. I just want to know a little bit about the history of Crockworld because it's got quite an amazing story behind it. Yeah, it, it definitely does. Well, um, for those of you that don't know, Crockworld was actually established in, in 1985 on the 27th of March um, and was originally established as a crocodile breeding farm. At the time... Crocodile farming wasn't all that abundant throughout uh, Southern Africa, and especially for an agricultural company, which is the company that owns Crockworld um, Conservation Centre, which is Crooks Brothers Limited, which has a very, very long history in agriculture. It has actually turned 100 years old um, very recently. And um, they decided in the mid-1980s to explore something new and decided to, to open up um, a crocodile breeding farm focusing specifically on farming the now crocodiles for both the skin as, as well as the meat. Um, and after the years, it sort of changed and, and things um, varied and, and focuses sort of changed on what the park was meant to achieve. And it's eventually, after a long history of, of 30 years, um, has, has got a, gotten us to the point we are today. So it's almost started from nothing. I think it originally was an under, undeveloped sugarcane field, which is where you actually are now. Yes, that's correct, yeah. So really out of nothing came this amazing centre, which is not just a tourist attraction, it's also an education centre. That is for sure, yeah. It, it's really become a place where anyone on the mid-south coast or even people up in Johannesburg or down in Cape Town, people who come to the, the south coast, um, it's definitely a pit stop on, on, on their list, list, I can put it to you that way. So we, we, we're very well known and, and we've got a long history, which we're also very, very proud of as well. Now, on the, what was it, the 11th of April, you had your official celebrations of your 30th anniversary. How did that all go? Uh, it went very, very well. Hey? It, it was a fantastic turnout of people um, for the celebration. Um, there were great images of, of the park when it was first opened, where there were hardly any trees planted around the, the crocodile pens and, and the enclosures. 
Um, and then to see the transition to, to where it is now was remarkable for everybody in attendance to actually see everyone got a nice big slice of, of yummy cake and some <laughs> coffee. And it was just a nice festive celebration, which we all thoroughly enjoyed. And here's to the next, hopefully more than 30 years into the future, because, I mean, you do such great work there. What's coming up there, Martin? Because every time I speak to you, you've got some amazing lectures or something. And then, you know, if people don't book soon enough, they miss out because, you know, they get booked up so fast. So what's on the cards for the next few months, if you know? Well, well, not a problem at all. Um, our next talk is actually going to be, um, which, which is obviously in, in our conservation program uh, lineup uh, for the rest of the year. The next talk is, is on the, on the um, 9th of May, and it's going to be done by a well-known underwater photographer. His name is um, Mr. Alan Walker. And he's actually going to be focusing on the Alawal Shoal, which is just off um, our coast here um, in Scottborough which is a marine protected area and, and really a place where not just divers come to, but there's a lot of importance about the oceans. And we've never done a talk about about the oceans. So this is going to really be a, a talk um, with a bit of a difference. And hopefully we'll attract uh, you know, a few people interested in learning about what happens in the water as well. And still tickets available for that one, I dread to ask. Yes, there is. So far, so good. Uh, people are, are still more than welcome to, to phone in. Um, if anyone is interested in finding out more about this specific talk or about um, any of the talks we can, um, they can either go onto our website, which is just www.crockle.co.za, or alternatively, if they would not have to call um, and book their space for the talk, they can contact us on 039 and I can just ask to speak to Lorene and she'll take your booking. So you, you broke up a little bit there, Martin. Could you give the phone number out again? Yes, not a problem. It's 039-976-1103. Okay, so they can call that number or have a look on the website, crockworld.co.z. And your lineup is on there, I take it, for the next while. Yes. Okay. Yeah, the, the, the next one after the, the talk in May will be in June, and that's going to be on plant propagation, which is going to be a fantastic topic because two very well-known individuals in, in sort of the nursery field um, in terms of plant propagating indigenous plants. Um, and that talk will be done by a very well-known technique called Mr. Chef Nichols, as well as Mr. Doug Cook. So that's also going to be something that I myself am really looking forward to. Um, they're fantastic speakers and very funny as well, which I always enjoy. So I'll, I'll make sure I'm with you. Now, other than all of these nice talks, though, there's still all the regular other things that happen at Crockworld. So those will all be ongoing as usual. Yes, um, we will be having a, a few other um, events, such as a Mother's Day special, where mothers on, on that day will be able to come into the park at no charge whatsoever. Only the dads and, and the little ones pay uh, entrance on, on, on that day. Um, and likewise, will be the case for Father's Day, where dads can be given for free. Um, and then lastly, on, on the 24th of September, which is Heritage Day, we have a half price special. So pensioners, adults, children, um, all of us that get into the facility at half price. Gosh, that sounds like lots lots and lots of things happening at Crockworld and some really nice specials coming up. So definitely keep an eye on the website because I'm sure it will all be on there. But uh, for the yes. talks, I suggest, as we've found out in the past, if you're wanting to go, don't wait until tomorrow. Do it now. Otherwise, you're not going to get in because there's a limited amount of tickets for those things. And they're always very popular. Martin, it's always wonderful chatting with you. Thank you once again very much indeed for some, your time this evening. Only a pleasure. And thanks once again for having me on your show. Pleasure. I'm sure we'll chat again soon. Yes, I'm sure. Martin Rodriguez is Crockworld Conservation Centre Manager and Herpetology Expert. And for more information on what's on offer, you can take a look at the website. It's www.crockworld.co.za or you can phone the office on 039-976-1103. Time to travel on SAFM. Well, the lack of focus, meaningful budgets and dedicated capacity at the local tourism level in South Africa could see the country blindsided by trends that are sweeping through the international leisure industry. Sean van Eck is the author of The Tourism Coach, which is the first business book in the world to be written specifically for tourism entrepreneurs. Sean, good evening. Welcome to the show. Hey, Karen. Lovely to be with you. Thanks so much. Well, I was looking through this book and I thought, gosh, I almost feel like I want to go and do this myself now because it, it almost makes it look like, you know, it's, it, you've done it in such a way that I can understand it. And I always reckon if I can understand something, then it's pretty simple to understand. 
Yeah, that's the whole point. You know, I think so many tourism entrepreneurs buy businesses and and you know really put lots into them, but have never marketed or run staff and that type of thing before. And all of the literature that exists on marketing is so highfalutin and and complicated. And I thought, yeah, it's time that we write something specifically for tourism. I I looked for a book like this for years for my members and couldn't find it. And it's it's really one of those heart issues. I absolutely love putting it together and, and really looking forward to engaging with people. Now this is almost this is a result of something else called the Tourism Coach Initiative. Yeah, I I really my heart is to see local tourism entrepreneurs thriving and um the, the initiative really has three legs to it. The first one is the book, which is now available throughout the country. Um, what I then hope to do from July onwards is get on the road and start speaking, doing talks in, in towns and cities around the country. Um, I'm hoping to cover between 60 and 80 towns and cities in a year. Um, once again, free talks just helping people to catch up with the latest initiatives and and trying to inspire them to be their best. And then after that, obviously staying in touch through blogs and various other means to to inspire them and, and keep in touch with them. Some of the points that you made were quite relevant to me because I've just spoken to, to somebody from the UK who was out here for the Responsible Tourism in Destinations Conference. And one mm. of the things that he said is, was something that you say as well. You know, we, we're all about that this is Cape Town or this is South Africa and look at all the fabulous places. You can go and have a look at this and look at that. And it's all this look and see thing. But it's that, yeah. that actual interaction and that's what he was talking about. It's got to be the real deal, the real experience of the culture and the people and that is what travellers are looking for now. And I think that is why people sometimes, the smaller entrepreneurs or the entrepreneurs who are stuck in the look and see and go and point at something, they're kind of stuck in that mindset. And it's that change, I think, that is, is the problem mm. for some of them. We've got to, Kyra, it's a wave that is sort of approaching and we've got to position ourselves to catch that wave and, and make sure that we transfer all of those skills. If you look at Canada and Australia um, Ireland countries like that, they've really written manuals for their, um, their private products on how to create tourism experiences. And um, it's exactly as you say, we have become part of our, our, our team have become old-fashioned with the look and see, and people really want to get involved now. They want a more in-depth experience. Um, and probably the greatest thing about it is creating conversations where people can interact and talk and get to know more about things and even hands-on do things. So, you know, maybe instead of going to a, a crayfish restaurant, actually doing the crayfish on the beach, cracking it, mm. cooking it, being guided in it, and um, going back home with yeah, either memories or skills or something that... That, that they've learnt on their holiday. And South Africa is great for that. I mean, we've got so much potential for that type of tourism. The one thing I liked about the book, Sean, is that, well, I wouldn't say near the back, it's sort of like halfway through, you start with the templates. And I was just mm. looking through them and I thought, gosh, if I was actually a tourism business owner, this would really make me take a long, hard look at myself. And I'm assuming that's what the whole point of it is because you, you have the checklist and you have the steps and then you've got to fill in things and you have to think about it. And I think that's possibly the problem is people just been going on day by day without really thinking about it. Yeah, that it, yeah, it's so important. We tend to get stuck in urgency instead of important things. You know, there, there's always something urgent to do. And I don't think we give enough time to deep thought about our businesses and the fact that we've got to innovate. We can't be standing still. We've continually got to innovate. And yeah, often the result is that if you take bed and breakfasts and guest houses, for instance, they all seem to say the same thing on their websites. Their marketing is very similar. So you have this mist of things with no one really standing out. There, you know, there are exceptions, but and that's what the book tries to do is take people step-by-step step through how to create differentiation, um, how to focus on the customer, because... That's something many of us don't do. We 
think about our products and how great it is, but we don't think about what the customer wants. And often there's a mismatch. And um, it, in a very gentle and easy way, takes you through the process and then has questions that you ask yourself just to make sure you're on the right track um, with examples as well. So if people get the book and they set aside one hour a week, um, within two months they'll see substantial changes in their business and um, their effectiveness with what they're doing. Well, I mean, the book is titled The Tourism Coach with the little sort of tagline, Make Money from Tourism, a Practical Guide. Now, you can't find me one person that doesn't want to make money from what they're doing. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) The interesting thing, you know, Kyron, is that um, it's a little bit of a, a... mindset that we need to change as Mm. well because if you look at making money just making money and you'll see in the book i make the point quite strongly you are going to chase things which probably are not going to get you anywhere close to making money um what we really want to do and that's that's where the tourism industry really needs to look closely is creating value Um, If you think about what money is, money is simply an exchange of something for value that is created. It's almost like a byproduct of your success, effectively, you know, of doing mm, something really well, you know. Yeah, you create value, money will follow. And that's where we've got to be looking the whole time is how can knowing our customers, which we should do, how can we create more value? How can we make the experience um, more special? Um, how can we work with our staff? And there, there, there's some fascinating insights there as well where so many people tell their, their staff what to do and how to do it. Um, so we have all of these fancy manuals, some of us in that, of, of what you should be doing. And then the staff do that. They give what they're supposed to give. But it's uninspiring and automated and that type of thing. Um, and what we've got to start looking at is saying, giving them the why, the the sort of essence of what their job is all about. And I saw a, a fantastic why the other day where the person said, why don't you say to your staff that you've got to do all the other things, but your main task, the main thing your job is all about, is turning each person who comes into this business into a promoter. Mm. And, yeah, you get the staff focusing on creating special moments for the guests. And then what that particular person does, that business as well, is every fortnight all of the staff get together and they have a brag session. Each person gets a chance to talk about a great moment that they created for a guest. Um, And it becomes a bit competitive. And... You can imagine what eventually happens is during the fortnight, they're looking for opportunities to create those great stories that they can go and brag about. Yeah, also, the other problem is, though, that some people will think, well, my business is doing all right. You know, I don't really need to do any more because it's, it's working for me. But it could be working mm-hmm. a whole lot better and you could be getting a whole lot more custom through your door. Yeah, and, and it works almost as a, a collective. Um, it's one of the things that... I'm very strong on. I believe that people in destinations, whichever town or city they're in, need to be working together to promote their destination, and then the business will increase in that destination and they'll get more. Um, And if we can do that throughout the country, if we can almost become Team South Africa instead of lots and lots of lone rangers doing their own thing, um, it's going to grow the pie for all of us. Um, we in a wonderful situation at the moment where our exchange rates and the unfortunate things happening in Kenya and that at the moment are giving us lots of business. But we've continually got to innovate and make sure that we stay on top of the latest trends and that and not only retain that but grow the business as well. I mean, and besides that, we are a long-haul destination, which doesn't help. Yeah, and those those other destinations are very sharp. You know, you look at what is happening with, as I said, with the whole tourism experience thing. Um, Canada is not only training their products in it, but they're saying to their products, 
if you reach a certain level of giving experience within your product, then we will promote you. Otherwise, we won't. So the whole drive is that then, even with something like a, a bed and breakfast, it's no longer just the bed and the breakfast. It's not suggesting great things that the guests can do, maybe a you know, lovely picnic basket that they can go out to a great view site and enjoy or something like that. So we've all got to start thinking of ourselves as being responsible for the whole experience that the tourist has in our destination um, and almost try and choreograph the best result possible instead of just looking at ourselves in isolation. The other thing that you talk about as well is towns, whole towns that are tourist destinations in themselves, just as the town. Mm. And as you said, the sad thing there is that a lot of, of the local government uh, is it's actually reducing their funding to the local tourism offices, and they are going to literally get left behind. Yeah, it, yeah as you said, it is such a competitive industry. I can understand the local councils because they're under massive pressure with infrastructural challenges and that type of thing. But you simply cannot do that. The, um, it won't happen immediately in the first two or three years. But after that, you lose your momentum, and, and momentum is huge in tourism. Um, and you, you can't, in towns, say that the private enterprise and um, industry, and that should be carrying those costs, which many of them do, because a lot of those products are already under heavy pressure um, with increases in electricity tariffs and you know, various other costs of doing business that have, that have picked up. And um, it is such an important part um, of economic development, keeping those budgets in place and also making sure that we're innovative with the way we spend those budgets, that we know the clients we're trying to attract and, and we really use them well and work together. Um, and I think that's part of the secret of the future. Maybe our local tourism organizations in the future shouldn't have membership fees. They should rather have cooperative advertising structures where you create uh, an opportunity to advertise with the destination and whoever buys into that then becomes a member of the organization and you know, sort of encourages our, our buy-in rate in South Africa is about 50 cents to every rand spent by local government organizations, whereas in Australia, it's $4 from private enterprise for every dollar spent by those organizations. Sure. So we've got to get a bit more innovative in the way we encourage people to become part of it. But local government needs absolutely to be aware of the fact that um, momentum is a cruel mistress. It disappears very quickly, um, and then you end up in real, real trouble with your local economy. And once a year, we have the e-tourism conference here in Cape Town. And how mm. important is e-tourism, the whole sort of social media and people actually becoming aware of how they can market themselves. I mean, you get things, I know almost every year they have a speaker at the conference from TripAdvisor. And I mean, those mm. sorts of places, I mean, those things are really important. Once one person puts something bad on there about your establishment or your offering or whatever, that's, I mean, everybody's going to read it. You've got to be aware of these things. Yeah, that's why the whole tourism experience thing is so important, Karen, because, um, yeah, five years ago, a good website and brochures and that type of thing would get you a lot of business because that is that was the influence point, how people got the information. Now, 90% um, of our visitors look at TripAdvisor to check. They might look at your website, but they'll look at how you rated on TripAdvisor. So the future of our tourism brand will be driven by how we're meeting our customers' expectations and exceeding them. So it's not just good marketing anymore. The whole focus has moved from you know, marketing on a national level and provincial and that to actually making sure that our local tourism experiences are of such a nature that people are going to rave about them. And um, through TripAdvisor and then also things like you know, social media and various other e-sites um, e and that, that we just get absolutely raved about with that. 
and also embrace things like TripAdvisor. A lot of people are, are afraid of it because they think they might get a, a bad review. Mm. But if you're not in yeah the, the top echelons of TripAdvisor, you can stagnate. And it is very easy to reply to a bad review. And interestingly, the latest trend is to reply to good reviews as well and sort of say, well, thanks very much. We've been working very hard with our staff to achieve that, and we're glad you noticed it, for instance. Mm. So that that is the future here. Um, the guys who are coming through as the future tourists spend more time on their computer um, and their cell phone than they do on television, radio, press, and everything else put together. So we've just got to embrace it and get those tourism experiences working and those sites raving about us. Now, let's get back to your book briefly before we wrap it up here, Sean. Uh, mm. This book is pretty much for anybody involved in the tourism industry. It's called The Tourism Coach. It's published by Tafelberg, available at all good bookstores, I'm sure. And it's something yep. that you, if, if you're involved in tourism, I think it needs to be next to your bed or on your desk. It's got to be somewhere where you can see it every day and just go through it. And these templates, I think, are wonderful because it really gives you all the points. And then you can think about it, as we mentioned in the beginning. gives you You need to start thinking about your business. Yeah, yeah, it's, it can't be hit and miss anymore. And I can, I can tell you with absolute conviction, Karen, that if people follow it, it is easy. It's not complicated marketing stuff. It really, and it just gets you to think and um, to think about how you can be better, how you can profile yourselves. Um, it'll challenge you, for instance, to come up with your one sentence about your business. You think about how many times people say, oh, what do you do? And you sort of mumble through a half-baked answer. All of those things will contribute to you being more effective as as a marketer, and that work gets around. And then if you give a really good experience that create raving fans and promoters and that, um, your business takes off its... um, it shows exponential growth, and I'm I'm so excited. It's my heart. I've seen so many people in in small towns who have put beautiful products together, but just don't know how to get the people there. And I'm hoping that the book can make a difference, not only to them, but even fairly sophisticated tourism marketers. And just sticking with our theme from a few minutes ago, it's also available as an ebook. So you don't have to, you can either have it in the hard copy, which I always prefer, or you can get it as an ebook. Sean, thank you so much for joining us on the show this evening. I wish you much success with this book. And as we said, anybody who's involved in tourism, really, they need to go and have a look at this because really it will help them definitely take their business in a whole new direction. Thank you so much for your time this evening. Oh, thanks, Karen. It's been lovely being on the show. Thank you for what you do for tourism and promoting all the products and that. Yeah, we we have a bright future ahead of us in South Africa. We can be the best in the world and look forward to meeting you and everyone else along the way as we, we play our little part in it. Well, Sean, thanks so much indeed once again for your time. Good night to you. Sean van Eck is the author of The Tourism Coach. It's published by Tafelberg, available in all good bookstores, and it's also an ebook, The Tourism Coach by Sean van Eck. Well, that's it for Time to Travel for this week. I'm Karen Key. Thanks for joining me this evening. If you've missed any information, go to Facebook, Travel on SAFM, or email me, travel at safm.co.za. And I'll be back with you on Monday evening with the Law Report when I'll be joined by attorney Michael Bagram, and we'll be talking labor law. Time now for some nighttime music. Hi, Steve. Even.